Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Well, uh, welcome to the start of yet another week. We are well into June, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we've had the US Open. Wimbledon can't be very far away. Andy Murray's in the news, so it must be tennis season. Obviously, we've got many, many things to talk about this morning. Amongst them, uh, Sir Keir Starmer is up in Scotland making a speech about North Sea oil and North Sea gas and how they're not going to be exploring for any more of it because obviously we've got enough. Huh? No, we haven't. Uh, Sir Keir Starmer trying to win over the Scottish vote, of course, because we heard over the weekend that Anna Sawa, the Labour leader, has actually got now a bit of an oomph in the polls and they're doing better than the SNP. Well, that's hardly surprising, uh, given Nicola Sturgeon, who came out yesterday to have a press conference in front of her house to ask people to stop standing around in front of her house. Huh? What do you do that for? If you don't want to see anybody at the front of the house, don't come out and talk to them, would be my suggestion. Coming up, uh, we're going to be giving you the lowdown on the top news this morning. How about this in the front page of the Times? Unbelievably, Britons are now going to be made a priority when it comes to council housing lists. What do you mean you didn't think they were already? What do you mean you thought that Britons didn't actually get to have a council house if there was somebody foreign who could go ahead of them? What on earth is going on in this country? Why is it news that British people get council houses before anybody else? It should not be news. It should be naturally happening. 0344 499 1000. We're going to kick things off this morning with Claire Fox, the Baroness. We're going to talk to her about gender madness. We're going to talk to her about all manner of things, including, of course, misleading the House. Because Boris Johnson, that story still rattles on. These ridiculous MPs are still going to debate whether or not uh, he should be barred from the parliamentary process whether he should have his past taken away uh, like some kind of naughty schoolboy and whether the 90-day suspension is the right thing to do. We're sick to death of it already. Don't you know that? Claire Fox made a very good point last week in which she said, what about all the other people who misled the House during the time of COVID? What about all those government ministers who got up and told us things that turned out not to be true? Are they going to be hauled before the beak? Are they going to be banned from Parliament? Are they going to be having their passes suspended? Well, apparently not. We shall see. 0344 499 1000. Small boat migrants are coming up as well. More than 10,000 of them have arrived already in this uh, country and it's only June. So we've got another 10,000, possibly another 20,000 to look forward to. Uh, we're going to be talking as well uh, to a former candidate for Mayor of London, Samuel Kasuma. Uh, he was a man who was supposed to be running for Tory candidate, didn't get selected, so he's not going to be now. But an astonishing amount of money is being rinsed 
from people in London in the capital city. £1.4 billion has been taken off them uh, in fines uh, for you know various different fixed penalty notices. Motorists are being absolutely conned rotten uh, by the Sadiq Khan regime. Uh, also, we're going to talk about the state of the Conservative Party. Tim Montgomery uh, is here to bring us that. Also, Madeleine Grant will be here uh, for the first time in a very long time. Daily Telegraph columnist, of course. We'll find out from her why there's still a row going on about the Boris Johnson's um, list of honours for people, including somebody who apparently just was doing maternity cover. But what about Prince William? We're going to say a nod to him as well. He's decided that he wants to build some houses for the good people uh, of this country who happen to be homeless. He's going to build them on his own land. He's obviously been listening to this show. It's yet another victory for the independent Republic of Mike Graham. If only the Archbishop of Wokebury would do the same. We'd all be getting rid of homelessness in a flash. 0344 499 1000. Uh, strap yourselves in, uh, strap yourselves down if you wish. Uh, this is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let's get it on. In other breaking news, right, uh, something that you might have thought was also already being done, parents are going to be given the right to be told if their children want to change gender while they're at school. Huh? The world is full of news at the moment, which shouldn't really be news. But it is news because we didn't realise how far in the other direction it had gone. Let's talk to Baroness Claire Fox, Director of the Academy of Ideas, because she will be similarly querulous, as I am, no doubt, um, that these things are actually not happening already. Claire, very good morning to you. <laughs> good morning, Mike. Good to be with you. Yes. I mean, it, I, I'm sorry to trivialise these matters, but, but the idea that British people should be put at the top of council house list and parents should be told um, that their children might want to change gender while at school seems to me these are two things which should have already been happening. Well, uh, that might well be true. But before we get too excited about the fact that parents are now going to be told whether their kids want to change gender, we should also note in a less headline grabbing piece of news that parents can't be able at the moment to withdraw their kids from some of the ludicrous relationship education that's leading them to think that they should be changing their gender in the first place. Yeah. Because one parent, Claire Page, actually took it to court when she found out that her, uh, her child was actually being introduced to uh, an attack on heteronormity. What is it? Heteronormity. Something like um, that. Something like that. One of those. Um, and constantly young people are being exposed through sex education, what it's called sex and relationship education lessons, to things which really are shocking in terms of age inappropriateness mm -hmm. and so on. So there's been a big campaign to get the government to ensure that parents can A, see the materials that their kids are using, and B, maybe potentially withdraw them. And guess what? They can't. They've lost in court. The government have been really slow on it. Right. And so... One of the ways that these young people decide that, you know, gender non-conforming is the way for them and they're going to identify as or whatever um, is because they're introduced to this formally through the curriculum because the government in 2020 introduced mandatory, i.e. you can't pull your kids out, lessons in relationships. Mm. And that has ended up including all this gender nonsense. Yeah, it is incredible, isn't it, how we've let that kind of whole thing slip by, though, because it seems to have happened by stealth in a way, because you've been talking about it, obviously, and there are other uh, very, you know, intuitive and, 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 and interesting uh, characters who do talk about it now. But, you know, three or four years ago, did we know this was actually happening? Well, I think that the problem has been that they've used this um, device of suggesting that anyone who dares challenge the orthodoxy mm. in relation to gender ideology, identifying 
you know, this whole thing about identity politics immediately gets closed down as a bigot, as transphobic. Mm. And I think we've seen that. Even There's a very funny, I don't know if you've seen the clip, but there's a very funny clip of um, Rishi Sunak having a kind of joke with some people yeah. uh, about Ed Davey not being able to work out whether a woman's got a penis or not. Yeah. Right? And Pink News, the newspaper, has kind of put this out as a shock horror. This shows what a bigot Rishi Sunak mm. is. I mean, as it happens, it's probably the best thing that's ever happened to him because he shows him to have a bit of your Mike Graham common sense in him. Right. And um, and also to be able to tell a joke, which is a bit of a surprise to us all. But anyway, there we go. Um, Pink News don't get the joke, of course, but they immediately take this as not actually Rishi Sunak making fun of Ed Davey but saying that it's making fun of trans people, mm. which it isn't. Right. And consequently, they call him a bigot and a transphobe and say it's a shocking revelation. And I think that people in public life have been far too prepared to uh, allow these slurs to silence them, to chill them. And of course, there's a group of activists probably in Whitehall and no doubt in the you know in, in all the political parties mm. who go along with this. But largely, the vast majority know it's something they should challenge but are frightened to do so and if you look at the fate of Labour MPs who dare speak out mm. uh, um, uh, like uh, the, the Kent MP uh, Rosie um, she Rosie Duffield actually, yeah. yeah Rosie Duffield she's actually been bullied by her own colleagues for daring to do so mm. so people just look the other way yeah. and I'm afraid it's doing a real disservice to children and their parents but it is also this kind of um, offensive um first choice, first base scenario, isn't it? Like everything's offensive and they're always looking to be offended by something that you've said, which was not intended to be offensive and probably isn't offensive. No, but also this is a very important issue. Young people are sent to school to be educated with the best that's known and thought, not indoctrinated by the latest ideological fad. Parents, are, you know, they act in loco parentis, teachers, but at the moment, teachers are behaving as though parents are the enemy. And the introduction of what are obviously highly contentious political issues, and it could be on gender, but it could be on critical race theory. It could be a kind of obsession with environmentalism. These things are taught to ch children as though they are fact. And the other uh, shocking story that's been in the papers over the weekend is the example of a teacher criticising to 14-year-olds who dared to challenge one of their classmates who said that uh, they identified as a cat. Mm. They kind of said, no, you don't, you can't be, you're not a cat. But it was all within the context of, of, of gender. The teacher then called those pupils despicable, said they should be kicked out of the school, said that it was factually not true that there were only two sexes, denied biological reality, and effectively threatened the young girls. What was amazing, because one of them filmed it secretly, mm. was that um, they were so brave. You know, it was really heartening to have two young girls being effectively uh, bullied by the teacher who stood up for themselves and said, no, we're not with this. And this is our opinion. You can't force us to say something we don't believe. That's what's going on in classrooms and in schools. And it really is time that the government stops shilly-shallying around. They've got a, a kind of consultation on what's being taught in sex and, and relationship uh, education, and they've delayed it and delayed it. I've raised it in the House of Lords. Lots of people have uh, made a fuss about this. And they're sort of somehow saying, well, we're going to ask about it. And I think the Department for Education needs to get a grip on this because parents are really 
been done a great disservice that their children have been used in some kind of experiment in ideology. Mm, yeah. Um, and the government are too frightened to deal with it head on. And they're starting that process as well of teaching children how to be kind of um, easily offended, how to teach children not to be resilient, yeah. how to teach children to kind of turn away from anything that they find a bit difficult. And basically they grow up then to be people who turn away from things that might be a bit difficult. And they're not then welcome um, in certain places because they don't feel that they can be welcomed. Because if you tell the young people, if you, as it were, provide the young with a set of excuses, mm. I mean, it's almost like a, a, a kind of a, a defence mechanism where you you know, if you're sort of 10 or 11, that all you have to do is to say, I find that offensive yeah. or that's harming my, uh, causing trauma to yeah. me. Those words are harmful. But they're being taught that, you know, kids on the playground don't automatically know what the words stress and trauma and anxiety are. But they're all wandering around, you know, six and seven-year-olds going, oh, I'm really traumatized. Yeah. Well, they've got that from adults, haven't they? So we're socialising the young mm. into seeing themselves as victims who are then given a weapon they can use, even against their teachers. Yeah. So if a teacher tries to reprimand them for something they're doing, they'll say, I, you know, that's so offensive. You're causing post-traumatic trauma in me. I can't possibly get my homework in. And I'm not being glib about this because I think that what we're doing is we're uh, uh, allowing young people not to develop the resilience they will need to deal with the problems of everyday life. I mean, we wonder why when they go to university, they all demand safe spaces mm. and tell the authorities they need to be uh, protected from harmful speech. But that started much earlier yeah. on in their uh, education. And I think the gender ideology is, the reason why that's so shocking mm. is because it's highly contentious outside of schools. Yet for many teachers, it's been taught as though it's fact. And then you've got these third party organizations, because a lot of head teachers will be going, well, God, we don't know what to teach mm. in gender and you know, in sexuality classes, what are we gonna do? So they bring in these activist groups who go in, provide all the teaching materials, train the teachers, mm. the head teacher looks away, and we now have discovered through this court case with this parent that if you're a third party provider in a school, you can say, I'm not gonna show the parents what we've used as teaching materials because that's confidential because of our uh, you know, important uh, um, uh, protection mm. of, our, uh, of our, you know, our workplace you know of our i can't remember what the word is um basically where you say this is confidential because we're a corporate entity yeah and that, the thing about that is oh, it's kind of copyright stuff the thing about that is that you think so basically parents are being told that their kids can be exposed to all of this and they'll never know about it right and i think that that really tries to separate children from their parents mm. indeed one of the arguments that's been used about why parents shouldn't be told if their kids decide that they're a different gender which the idea of which they will have picked up in school in the first instance, where they're basically a tomboy or they're maybe going through puberty, some young yeah. girls sort of don't like their body and a bit self-conscious. And immediately you've got a, an adult affirming that this might mean that they're a different sex. The reason why then they're, uh, they're saying we shouldn't tell the parents is because because the parents are probably bigots. Right. Well, that's what they say. But I mean, who decides and, and who makes that decision? Stay with us. How dare they? Well, exactly. Exactly. Who decides that your parents are bigots? Therefore, they can't be told anything. I mean, it's madness. Claire Fox, Director of Academy and Ideas, is here with us. We're going to be talking some more uh, about misleading Parliament, about misleading the public. And of course, much else besides. This is Talk TV. Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV.
Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Last week, it was the focus of most of the news organisations and news programmes and newspapers. I'm talking, of course, about Boris Johnson uh, and the decision by the Privileges Committee uh, that he misled Parliament deliberately. It's still running around this story. I can't believe we're still even paying much attention to it. But today in Parliament, there is going to be a vote, apparently, very possibly, and certainly a debate about whether uh, Boris Johnson should have his pass taken away from him and banned from Parliament for <coughs> a period of time. But... We're talking to Baroness Claire Fox. Claire, you made some interesting points at the end of last week as well um, on the on the subject of misleading Parliament because you started asking the question, what about all those people who misled Parliament during the COVID years? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe because I was in the House of Lords, I kind of, you know, I, I went in during the lockdown period. So I was exposed to listening to government ministers and to people in officialdom. And by the way, the opposition the Lib Dems, yeah. the Labour Party and the Greens, all standing up and making the most amazing claims about what we needed to do that was factually correct in terms of rules of six, not being allowed to sit down on a park bench, you know, people saying things like the evidence shows that masking will do this, the evidence shows. And actually, they misled Parliament. Right. And in fact, they they've, we even know some of this because subsequently through... Um, you know, reading Matt Hancock's um, uh, WhatsApp messages, he actually talked about ramping up the fear to scare people over a particular variant. Right. We know that the nudge unit, because we've seen the evidence, Laura Dodsworth deserves some credit for this, mm. actually talked about uh, creating a culture of fear that would bring about compliance. Now, that is misleading the public, and a lot of those things were said in Parliament, therefore misleading Parliament. Right. And they were sort of said knowingly because this was the messaging that they need to, yeah. to get out. Well, surely surely, if Matt Hancock is admitting, as you say in his WhatsApp messages, we need to do this to scare people, that is knowingly yeah. misleading, isn't it? Yeah. And, yeah, absolutely. But also, I mean, a lot of the rules that we were told to adhere to, you know, how many people could go to a wedding, right. how far away the, you know, the father of the bride needed to be from the bride when you only had six people at the wedding, all this kind of nonsense. Mm. The tragedy of not being able to see loved ones in care homes, the funerals, all of these scandals that makes seeing that video over the weekend so visceral, that makes us furious, of course, with Boris Johnson, which I understand, should make us furious because we should recognise that those rules were dreamt up by civil servants. A lot of those kids at parties were told to come up with rules, right? Yeah. It wasn't a group of scientists who said this. They came up with every time you'd get an announcement during the day, they would then spend the next two days compiling, you know, 30 pages of guidance, which was dreamt up out of nowhere. Mm. There was no, they didn't go off and have big inquiries and scientists. And then they would say, if you break this guidance, you'll be breaking the law. It's one of the reasons why none of us, you know what it was like. We didn't know whether we, if we sat down on a park bench with a coffee, you didn't know whether you were doing the criminal activity of the year right. or having a break. Right. You know, well, sure. this is it. I mean, at the beginning, I think an awful lot of people, and I would include myself in it, weren't sure whether the, the guidance was going to actually save somebody's life. So you kind of went along with it. But of as course. time went on, as time went on, it became very clear that it was just a device for sort of controlling people. And this is why I'm, I'm sick to death of watching all these kind of, you know, um, you know, hand wringing types over the weekend in the media and in politics as well, going on and on and on about, you know, the ghastly Tory party breaking the rules and, you know, having no care for, for the people. The fact is the rules were pointless and that's why people broke them. And even those people who were making them didn't believe them. 
the thing is, we didn't. The point about the misleading parliament, I think, is just the knowledge that they they basically developed a scheme to ensure that we were locked down and the society was closed. And even if they were doing that with the best of intentions, I mean, you know, you, if you took it at face value that they thought this would save mm. people's lives, those rules were by and large dreamt up out of nowhere and then presented to us and presented to Parliament as though they were the gods on this truth, right? Yeah. And they knew that that was wrong. And I remember having a massive row in the Lords about um, the vaccine in relation to care home workers. Now, I, I'm one of those people who thinks the vaccine was very useful for people who particularly were older at protecting themselves. Absolutely. But by that time, we knew that transmission wasn't stopped by taking the vaccine. Yet there were ministers and people on all sides of the house who went along with sacking care home workers on the basis that they wouldn't be forced, mm. mandated to take a vaccine, which wouldn't have stopped transmission to the elderly people they were caring for. And the minister and the people around them said, we need to protect older people in care homes, or we have to protect these people in care homes. Therefore, anyone who doesn't take the vaccine is a threat to them. Yeah. And that was a lie. Right. And they sort of knew it. And I stood up and said, well, we know that transmission isn't stopped by the vaccine. And what was I treated? I was treated like I was some kind of lunatic, right. COVID-denying, conspiratorial nutcase. Yeah. There are a few of them about, by the way. Yeah. But I was not one of them. I was actually trying to raise the facts here, and they dismissed me. I think that's misleading Parliament. It is. I think it happens a lot. So it's not because I want to let Boris Johnson off the hook. I have a huge criticism for him. But the focus on this um, inquiry has over-fetishised one person misleading Parliament yeah. in one way and misses the whole lockdown fiasco when it comes to the most important thing for me, which was misleading the public. Mm. Yes. No I, think, no, I think you're absolutely right. And there is this ludicrous kind of over-vilification of Boris Johnson as well, as if it's all his idea and it was all his fault yeah. and only he should take the blame because they want to, you know, kick him to death so he never comes back to haunt them ever again. It's a shambles, the whole thing. I mean, the idea that they're wasting another day of parliamentary time having a conversation about whether to ban him. I mean, just stop already. Yeah, because, you know, there's really important, you, you, you've talked already about uh, the, the problems around social housing, yeah. you know, whether British people get social housing, there's a big crisis around mortgages. I mean, uh, uh, the, the, we are facing um, a major health crisis created in part by mm. lockdown, and we can't get people treatment. A lot of GP surgery is not functioning properly. All of these things, right? Mm. And there's never enough time to deal with it. I'm always being told in the Lords, you know, we're running out of parliamentary yeah, time. Right. We've talked about parents being treated badly and around this gender stuff. And they say they have a long drawn out um, consultation now and everything is taking so long. But they suddenly get speedy Gonzales, right? You know, the COVID inquiry is going to take years, but they managed to hold this inquiry into Boris Johnson, deal with it, give over parliamentary time one whole day. Right. I mean, God... I don't mind people criticising the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, but I really think this is people, honestly, getting off on transferring their guilt about something yeah. onto him right. when there's much bigger important things for us to deal with. And that doesn't mean that you therefore go, Boris Johnson's a lovely, cuddly person. But I think there's something vindictive about this. Totally. Taking his pass off him. You know, it's like, 
God Almighty, right? He's gone. What is wrong? Well, it's with like they God? think they're back at boarding school or something. I mean, it's pathetic. I just find it absolutely and utterly pathetic. One of the worst aspects of the way the parliamentary system works. But Baroness Claire Fox, delightful to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Have a great day. Have a great week. Uh, Director of the Academy of Ideas, of course. Like me, absolutely certain that this is a witch hunt and it's not necessary and it's a waste of our time and it's a waste of our money. So just stop. Just stop. This is Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Tim Montgomery's here a little bit later on. He'll give us the lowdown on the state of the Conservative Party. Uh, Chris says this, very your discussion with Baroness Fox. British parents face a choice. A, send their child to a state school where they are likely to be brainwashed with woke nonsense and secretly encouraged to question their gender when the teachers are not striking. Or B, use the costly private system and be treated as pariahs by right-thinking people. And that's right-thinking, of course, in inverted commas. Uh, Terry in Roundsbottom says, teaching children is okay to keep things secret from their parents puts them at risk from child molesters and one here which is rather good uh, identify as a cat send them home cats don't go to school well no they don't uh, they don't go home often either tony says marxists have infiltrated our education system at every level they hate religion monarchy and family values absolute scumbags and christine in surrey when will enough be enough no one should set foot on our soil until we know who they are and why they are here. Enter by invitation only, quality over quantity, take migrants' DNA, return immediately to their countries of origin. If these countries refuse, withhold foreign aid, if relevant, but also diplomatic privileges. We have a weak, inept, self-interested political establishment, including the civil service, who don't care for the electorate. Well, uh, to wit... I could uh, count, actually, uh, the story on the front page of The Times just before we speak to Jeremy Hutton from Migration Watch because there's news this week that small boat migrants have already topped 10,000 this year alone. And, of course, those in the Conservative Party who don't think it matters will tell you, well, it's only a tiny number. It's only 10,000. Well, it's a big number if you've got a house and you've got 10,000 people hanging around outside it waiting to get in. That's a big number. 10,000 is a lot of people. It's half uh, the capacity of Stamford Bridge, Chelsea's football ground, practically, for heaven's sake. Uh, Britain's to be priority on council house lists, is what it says on the front page of the Times. I find this astonishing. Why should it be a front page news story? Because it turns out that Britons are not priority on council house lists. Let's talk now uh, to Jeremy Hutton from Migration Watch and see if he can tell us why. Jeremy, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks very much indeed for talking to us. I know that uh, we're going to talk about the numbers game in a moment and the numbers of people coming. It looks like it's over 10,000 already. Uh, we know that the migrant barge off the coast of Dorset will be ready for service pretty soon, but there's issues around that as well. But what about this uh, Britain's to be priority on council house list story? I find it staggering that that should even be news. You know, what the hell are they doing, these council house uh, uh, people? It is incredible, really, that it doesn't seem that that was the default position. Right. I mean, I'm sure there are some councils that were doing the sensible thing and making sure that British people who needed social housing were prioritised for it, but I'm sure there were others out there where they would do good as you thought, okay, here's, here's an asylum seeker who's just come across in a small boat. Let's make sure they get the first house available. Meanwhile, there are British people, of course, who might end up homeless on the street yeah. or forced into overcrowded housing themselves. And it's those people who've been paying taxes for years as well. It's utterly farcical, and I think it's extremely embarrassing that this for the government. This story has been so heavily highlighted, right. and I think they should be quite embarrassed over the current turn, about turn in the past few days as to the state of the channel crossings as well. Well, if you look at some of these um, numbers here in the, in the Times, in Brent, northwest London, 40% of new social, home, social homes were let to non-UK citizens in 21 and 22. In Southwark, the proportion was 29%. In Oxford, 26%. In Milton Keynes, 23%. 
other places included Manchester, Coventry and Birmingham with relatively high levels of, uh, of rental properties going to foreigners. Um, I mean, there's an awful lot of people homeless in this country. We're going to talk later on uh, in the show about Prince William, who wants to house many of those by building social housing on his own land. But, you know, the priorities, it seems to me, in this country are all wrong. Absolutely. Uh, those numbers that you just outlined sort of shock and appall everyone that's listening, I would have thought. The UK is in a in the midst of a really quite dramatic housing crisis, and people up and down the country are either suffering homelessness as a result, or they're struggling to pay their bills, and we can't get enough houses built to actually fit the scale of migration at the moment. So unless we actually have a complete step change in policies to reduce immigration and, and to ensure that we can actually uh, well home everyone that wants to live in the country, then the problem is only going to get much, much worse. Yes, absolutely right. Um, the Labour Party don't seem to have any answers for this problem either. Keir Starmer's up in Scotland at the moment, in Edinburgh, making a speech about cutting bills and creating jobs and providing energy security. But he hasn't got anything to say very much, and all very often, um, about immigration, has he? No, we're not terribly impressed at the Labour Party's policies. There are some; They're making some good noises in some areas, so I think they've endorsed the uh, government's line on... Um, postgraduate students, for instance, mm. and they've said something good about uh, visa requirements. But ultimately, it's all tinkering around the edges and their, their approach to illegal migration won't make a jot of difference. They're seeming ex showing extreme reluctance to do anything about that. And I think that's because ultimately they've got there's two sides of voters to the Labour Party. You've got the, um, the normal, the old school Labour voter, you know, uh, maybe sometimes called uh, blue Labour, for instance, red wall voters. Um, who might have trade unionist backgrounds and just want to see uh, the fact the deal for their family improved. And then you've got the other sort, sort of Islington set, whose main priority is poor people in you know on faraway shores. They really prioritise the people who are actually trying to come to Britain, not the people who are already here. And as un unless the Labour Party actually works out which side of its voter base it wants to satisfy, this is going to be a, a chronic issue, and they're not going to solve the issue unless they 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 uh, sort that paradox out. No, exactly right. Meanwhile, we see that 2,375 people have made the crossing uh, across the channel uh, in the past week in 46 different boats. And it means basically the numbers are near where they were last year, which is not down 20%, which is what Rishi Sunak was suggesting. But basically 10,000 people had crossed the channel by June the 2nd last year. It looks like we're about the same now. Yeah, um, if you look at just the second quarter so far, comparing it with last year, we're only down 6%, mm. which is, you know, not particularly impressive. And that 6%, we can probably just allot to a reduction in Albanians. I think the best the government's probably hoping for at this point is matching last year's numbers, because we're, we're surely going to see another summer influx of significant numbers. And we don't actually know if the Albanian crossings have been fully deterred yet, because right. apparently a few more have started coming across in the second quarter. So the summer will... will will tell and I don't think we're going to meet we're going to reach the earlier forecast this year I think um I think the home office was saying 65,000 at one point yeah uh, we're probably going to be lower than that but we're still going to be a very high number mm. and frankly even if it's matching last sorry the 2021 figure it's still far too many. That's still tens of thousands of yeah. people who are well, this is the thing. illegally coming into the UK. And also the idea that somehow Rishi Sunak has stopped 20% of the crossings just by the power of his own personality. You just kind of go, sorry, 
I don't really believe you. I'm not really buying it. And it turns out probably that it isn't true anyway. But most of the young Albanian men coming here are coming here illegally because they want to come illegally because many of them have been deported once already. And so they're coming here to be part of a criminal uh, enterprise. They're hardly likely to just go, oh, right. Oh, oh, so apparently it's illegal now. So I'm not going to come. Mm. I imagine one of the differences we'll see coming later this year is because now they know that if they are intercepted, they will be deported more quickly than before yeah. and less likely to put up in a hotel. I think you'll probably see them trying harder not to be intercepted in the first place and just getting onto the beaches of Dover, maybe meeting up with a mate in a car mm. or catching a quick bus and just going hell for leather so that they don't get intercepted by the police and the Home Office. Yes, exactly right. So, I mean, as far as the weather is concerned, it's really the only thing that stops them, isn't it? If the weather turns and the tides turn, then suddenly they don't come for a while, but basically everything else mm. enables them to do so. Yes, I've been keeping a close eye on the Channel forecast, and certainly that period when, um, when there were no crossings, the weather was very clearly bad, and it didn't take a particularly well-educated person to see why no one was begging it across the Channel. Looking at the next, uh, well, the rest of the month, really, the weather's looking pretty calm, and I think we can expect to probably probably beat last year's record for June quite easily. Mm. Yeah, and that's not something we should really be looking forward to, I don't think. Um, Jeremy, thank you very much indeed. Jeremy Hutton there from Migration Watch talking about the state of play when it comes to the numbers coming here illegally. Uh, small boat migrants top 10,000 10, people this year already. Pretty much the same as last year, despite what Rishi Sunak said, that the numbers were actually down uh, by around about 20%. Um, Keir Starmer is speaking up in Scotland. He's talking about uh, cutting bills, creating jobs and providing energy security. Uh, he says he wants more green initiatives. Uh, he's in Scotland, as I've listened. Our sciences, the technological edge. And yes, if you can believe it, even our weather. Financial strength here in Edinburgh. And yes, in the city of London too, I know, but nonetheless, the world leader for green finance, a massive advantage for all of us. Seriously, there are no grounds for the defeatism which says we can't lead the world on this, that our prospects will always be squeezed out by the US and the EU. That's declinist nonsense. But at the same time, we've got to get moving. And at the moment, we're standing on the sidelines, wringing our hands, falling behind because our government talks about economic stability, yet understands nothing of what this requires in times like ours. When the winds of change are blowing this fiercely, you need a government that gets involved, that intervenes on behalf of working people to secure stability and growth. Drift equals chaos. This is about Tory ideology. Of course it is. Their impulses are totally out of step with the challenges of the modern world. They still cleave to a set of ideas that came out of the 1980s. The dismissal of industrial strategy. The contempt for active government. The complacency that says only the market decides which industries matter for working people and national security. You cannot understate this. Those ideas are finished. They can't cope with a world where other countries simply don't behave in the way market dogma expects. The world now knows that crucial global supply chains can be weaponized by tyrants, that a sticking plaster approach to investment will only cost more in the long run, and that for working class communities, trickle-down economics means power trickles up and jobs trickle out. Oh, God. 
It's so dull. I can't bring myself to listen to it anymore. This claptrap. Shut up. Let's go. This is uh, Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Fascinating first hour, some great calls. Uh, we spoke about Prince William and his plan to do away with homelessness in this country, uh, which is a great aim, it has to be said. Uh, and of course, he's going to do what I suggested that the Archbishop of Canterbury should do, uh, which is to use all of the land that they've got in the Church of England, uh, and in his case, uh, in the um, Duchy of Cornwall, basically, uh, to build on. There's plenty of it, hundreds of thousands of acres owned by the uh, Church of England and, of course, by the royal family. And why not put some social housing on it? Because we learned this morning, unbelievably on the front page of The Times, that it turns out that if you're British, you don't actually get priority for a council house in many parts of the country. Uh, some of the figures are quite staggering. We'll revisit that in this hour. Tim Montgomery's here, former number 10 advisor, of course. And uh, we just heard Sir Keir Starmer with his green energy plans up in Scotland. Um, it was so dull, quite frankly, I had to switch it off. I'm not sure what they are. Uh, he claims that they're going to start their own energy company. Marvellous. I wonder who they're going to appoint to run it. Jeremy Corbyn? Who is there out there in the Labour Party that they've got? Uh, maybe they'll give it to Dale Vince. He seems a busy boy when it comes to the Labour Party. Maybe Dale will end up running the British Energy Corporation. I'm not sure that's such a good idea, are you? 0344 499 1000. David Cameron in this hour giving evidence to the COVID inquiry. We'll have a little peek at that as well. Also, Sue Gray apparently refused to cooperate with an inquiry into Labour's role um, with her and her appointments at Downing Street. So that's another story uh, that we need to sort of break open this morning. Also, today's vote on Boris Johnson, whether he have, should have his pass revoked for Parliament. An absolute waste of time, in my view. We'll find out what Tim McGovern makes of that, of course, as well. Later on in the show, we're going to be talking uh, to Councillor Billy Brooks from East Lindsay District Council in Skegness. Um, let's go now live uh, to the COVID inquiry and have a listen in uh, to David Cameron. Just before we talk to Tim. ...she made was to have a sort of full-on National Security Council, to have a National Security Advisor, to have a National Security Secretariat. And the point was to, first of all, make sure that the whole government looked at these um, risks. Second, to make sure there was sort of real ministerial oversight because the National Security Council would be chaired by the Prime Minister. Um, third, to make sure that it was more strategic, thinking right across the board about all the risks, and also making sure it was truly international. So you were looking at risks of terrorism and climate change and space weather and all sorts of things, but also things like um, pandemics. And why I particularly thought this was important was, while I think the Civil Contingencies um, Act and the previous government had done a good job in this regard, I knew that um, prime ministers are always in danger of being pulled into the short term rather than the long term. And having a national security council that you chair and a national security advisor um, and having as part of that looking at the danger of things like pandemics and, and, and it would make sure you did focus on those long term things as well. So that was the point of the reform. And I. I I think it worked. I really, I like the way the National Security Council and the advisor worked and the, the time the Prime Minister spent on that stuff because um, it, it had a good structure. And you implemented those recommendations um, as soon as you came into office. That's right. I mean, it was, we were in the middle of the Afghan conflict and I, I thought, for instance, we would handle that conflict better if we had a whole government approach and if the National Security Council 
could address the challenges, and you'd have round the table all the relevant people, whether it was the Defence Secretary, the Aid Secretary, uh, the Energy Secretary, the Home Secretary, and the Prime Minister. Um, and it, it, why I think it's so important so is... So there he is, David Cameron, former Prime Minister, giving evidence to the COVID inquiry. Uh, we'll go back there from time to time, uh, as and when it gets interesting. Um, I have to say, must must say this, it's not particularly interesting at the moment. Let's talk to Tim Montgomery, who will be far more interesting, I have to say. Tim, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I yes, must I, I was, lucky you've arrived now. Five, ten minutes ago, I was listening to Keo and I was snoozing, so um, <laughs> arrived at the right time. Well, do you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, I was I tried my best to listen to, to Keir Starmer, but it's true, <laughs> it's true what people say, that you can listen to it and five minutes later you've not, you've not remembered anything that he's actually said because you kind of zone out. And the thing with David Cameron that I'd forgotten about is quite how posh he sounds. He does sound posh, but you know what, Mike? After some of the prime ministers we've had recently, <laughs> I wasn't the greatest fan of him at the time, but if you had to rate them, I don't know how you would rate them. Boris, B. Truss, B. May, B. Cameron. I think I'd put Cameron at number one now. Really? I think he was the best of the four. He really was. I didn't agree with him on Brexit. I still don't, but it didn't imp- How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Barris Britain on the world stage. He was up to the job. He was always good at PMQs. He was, you know, in charge of detail. Um, yeah, I think he's the best of the four prime ministers, conservative prime ministers we've had since uh, 2010. I, 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 I wouldn't I think, have expected to say that. No, no, I think that 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 is a bit of a surprise. I think I'd say that Boris still edged it. I mean, I suppose the one thing you could say that David Cameron did do, particularly for people who wanted to vote for Brexit, was that he gave them the chance to do so. And he did yeah. give the referendum to the public to make that decision. Yeah. And it was a huge gamble. George Osborne, you may remember, it was um, you know, David Cameron's chancellor. He strongly opposed giving that referendum. Mm. So it's easy to sort of say in you know, retrospect that um, David Cameron had to give it. But actually, that certainly wasn't George Osborne's view. He, he really thought it was a massive mistake to no. uh, allow us to have a say on the future of our country. Absolutely. I must say, I wasn't a fan of, of, uh, uh, of George Osborne either. I thought he was one of the worst chancellors we ever had since we're, since we're comparing notes. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I think austerity in retrospect looks like it was overdone. Yes. It was a time probably to um, international borrowing rates were quite low and probably we overcut at that time. Yes. And... Um, but, you know, it's easy and easier with it, hindsight. It is easy with hindsight. I mean, I will always remember him as the man that put a tax on a pasty and then took it off again uh, before you had time to heat it up in the microwave. 
Yeah. And of course, you remember the pictures he did. I think it was in some, was it Leeds Railway Station? They hurriedly showed pictures of Cameron and Osborne eating right. pasty just to show that they actually were in touch with the <laughs> common man after that whole yes. business. Absolutely. Yeah. Talking of the common man and woman, I think an awful lot of people are sick to death of the behaviour of our parliamentarians at the moment. Today, particularly having yet another day of, of uh, uh, set aside for Boris Johnson um, and this ridiculous idea that he should be uh, banished from the, from the Palace of Westminster. You know, they don't seem to quite understand that people have moved on. Yes, there are a lot of people who are angry with Boris Johnson. Yes, there are a lot of people who are sorry for what he did. But, you know, he's no longer an MP or very shortly won't be. He's no longer the Prime Minister. Why are they, why are they obsessing with it so much? Well, it's, it's not just Parliament, is it, Mike? It's the whole of not this programme. The Independent Republic is a, a land of common sense, as mm. we know. But, yeah. um, you know, the whole weekend we had this video of these um, party goers mm. in Tory HQ. And look, I'm not going to defend what they did. I'm not going to defend what Boris Johnson did. But... You know, we're, we're at war with Ukraine. Yeah. And we have a massive crisis with our, you know, with mortgages. Public services are under strain. You've been talking about homelessness yeah. this morning. You've been talking about that, you know, what our kids are being taught in school um, as well. And transgender stuff being imposed on young kids. There are so many other things that we could be talking about. But the media obsession with Partygate... Mm. How many more weekends, how many talk shows, how many more newspaper front pages are we going to spend discussing this issue? I'm not defending the hypocrisy of the party, you know, saying one thing, you know, declaring rules that we all had to abide by and then not following mm. themselves. I don't defend it for a moment. But my goodness, they just obsessed with this issue. There's a vindictiveness to it to sort of sort of get the Conservative Party on this issue, almost to destroy them. And I do begin to think there's quite a party political motivation that's driving a lot of this coverage. Yeah, I don't, I don't doubt that at all. I mean, I was watching um, Laura Kunzberg's show yesterday. She was very excitable about the news that the Labour Party in Scotland were now polling ahead of the SNP, because not everybody agrees with that poll. No, no. Well... Thing is, you know, we, we, we laugh at Gisam and you know, snoozing as he gives this fascinating speech on the green agenda. But um, you know, he is actually, you know, he almost doesn't have to do anything. He can send us to sleep and still become prime minister at the moment because, you know, his two principal foes, the Conservative Party and the SNP, were too busy shooting mm. themselves in the foot. Well, there was a time, wasn't there, when all he had to do was not say anything very much and his poll ratings just kept going up. It was only when he started talking that they came back down a bit because actually once you listen to what he's got to say, there's not much going on there. That's the mistake. You should be his advisor, Mike. Be <laughs> quiet here. Be quiet yeah. here and everything will be fine. Absolutely right. Also, Sue Gray... Um, thought to be a, another sort of blunder by Keir Starmer, which he didn't really need to make, you know, because suddenly he created an issue out of something, um, which if he just waited a little while, would never have been an issue. Yeah. Well, this is fascinating, really, I, I think, um, probably a bit inside the beltway for perhaps some of your, your viewers yeah. and listeners, but here's the lady in the civil service who presented herself as the custodian of ethics, and according to this sort of leaked report that I think was in Saturday's Daily Telegraph, she basically breached all the civil service rules mm. about how you're supposed to conduct yourself if you get an external approach for a job. Mm. And according to the report that was in the Telegraph, if she hadn't already resigned, if this matter had been investigated, she would have been summarily dismissed. 
So Keir Starmer, you know, liking to present himself as um, Mr. Goody Two Shoes on all the stuff mm. with regard to the Tories, but actually in hiring his chief of staff, his chief of staff, you know, he is um, he's, he's hired someone who breached the core rules of the civil service on impartiality. You you, you really couldn't make it up, which seems increasingly the catchphrase for this country as we go from one <laughs> saga to another. It really is extraordinary, isn't it? Because it does appear to be, and I think a lot of people are fed up with the two-party system as we speak, it does seem to be a kind of a rigged system. You know, if you're in it, great. But if you're not in it, you can't get in. Um, and they seem to spend most of their time in it trying to throw other people out of it. Yeah, no, it's... Um, I, I, if Nigel Farage, I think, was... You know, standing now at a sort of, you know, in his prime um, for UKIP or the Brexit Party or whatever the various iterations that parties had, I think he could do very, very well. It's always hard to break into mm. the Westminster system because of our first past the post system. But I think people are so fed up with the Tories at the moment. And as we've been discussing, you know, the nation isn't exactly enthusiastic or being set on fire mm. by, with enthusiasm for the Labour Party. I think a real alternative could make a breakthrough um, now, um, but uh, I'm, I'm not sure what uh, Nigel Farage's intentions are. No, I'm not sure either. And I, might, I wonder as well whether this is the right time for reform. But I think if reform do get a lot of votes, as UKIP did that time when they only got one seat, I think that could be a catalyst for change, couldn't it? Well, you say that, Mike, but I think I, is it UKIP, I can't remember which election it was now. I think it might have even been 20... 15. Yeah. But, you know, they got over 4 million votes. Yeah. And they got no parliamentary seat at all. The no. Liberal Democrats, I think, you know, got slightly fewer, slightly more uh, votes, but, you know, they got 10 or something, mm. something like that seats. You know, the, the system first past the post is not um, favourable mm. to insurgent parties. And so I'm, I'm not sure how many votes it would take for a breakthrough to happen. You know, the trouble is that the two parties that most benefit from the system, the Conservatives and the Labour Party, aren't going to give up that system without a very strong uh, case for doing so. No. I think perhaps if Labour needs the MPs from the Liberal Democrats and the Liberal Democrats make a referendum on proportional representation, the price of putting Labour in power, I think probably that's the only way I can see it happening in the near future. Mm. You don't see a sort of split in the Tory party in some way, shape or form, so that the more conservative MPs kind of go one way and everybody else stays where they are? That might be a way, but um, I think even then, though, the conservative MPs in Parliament, even if they split off from um, you know the old conservative party, if you like, to form a new sort of right-wing party, they will be there because they've been elected under first-past-the-post mm, system. So yeah. if that's how you got there, you sort of hold on to nurse and fear of something worse, I think. And yes. um, I think it will take the Liberal Democrats to hold the balance of power, perhaps the SNP, I don't know, um, because they've long believed in electoral reform. And I think it'll only be uh, that sort of scenario mm. that would actually deliver it. And okay. I, ha I have mixed feelings myself about whether that would be that would be desirable. But in terms of the mechanism for making it happen, that would probably be the yeah. only way. I mean, the danger, I suppose, would be if you split the right vote, um, you end up with the Labour government for quite a long time. <laughs> well, you would. Although I think I think the idea that um, at the moment the Conservative Party has just been very disciplined in working under the first-past-the-post system, ensuring that the right isn't as divided as the left is, I think um, you would get um, 
I don't think there is a left-wing majority in Britain. Mm. I think you would get different political parties emerge to represent the fact that Britain is just about still a conservative country. Yeah. Whether it will still be a conservative country when all these young people indoctrinated in schools have grown up, that's a, that's well, a very different question. Yeah, and it doesn't often feel a very conservative country when you live in London either, but that's another story uh, altogether. Yeah. Tim, thanks very much indeed. Tim Montgomery, their former number 10 advisor, uh, on where now for the Tory party, because it's not clear exactly where they're going, is it? 0344 499 1000 is the number. We're going to talk some more about housing. We're going to talk some more uh, about the power uh, of being an outsider because we're going to be joined by uh, somebody who wanted to be Mayor of London but hasn't been allowed to run as a Conservative candidate. Samuel Kasumu. Uh, we'll talk to him. He's a special advisor to Boris Johnson as well. This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. We're just watching a little bit of David Cameron there at the COVID inquiry, but I'm joined by Samuel Kasumi, former special advisor to Boris Johnson, author of The Power of the Outsider. Welcome, Samuel. Thanks for having me, Graham. Nice to see you. Um, David Cameron, remember him? Yeah, yeah I remember him. <laughs> did, were you, when did you work for Boris Johnson? I worked for him between 2019 and 2021, so okay. close to two years. Right. So yeah. after the election, effectively? Yeah. Inside well, of Downing so, Street. So yeah. before... Well, so, so, so you kind of took over... You were there when the COVID crisis happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got there in the summer, then right. we tried to get Brexit done. Right. Well, we did get Brexit done, yeah. depending on who you, who you ask. Right. And then uh, we had elections. Well, you got it done mostly, I think. We got, we got enough of it done. Yeah. More than anyone More else. More than has. anyone else. That's what I would say, because yeah. funny enough, I was talking to Tim Montgomery, uh, who was also around about that time. Yeah, yeah, he was there. Um, and he was actually saying, watching David Cameron, he thinks that of the Prime Ministers that we've had since, he was probably the best of them. Well, Boris believed in Britain and he had that big, rambunctious, positive energy mm. that you need when you're leading from the front, I think. Yeah. No, he did. And I mean, it all started to kind of go a bit wrong, partly due to his own, I suppose, carelessness, you might say. But I mean, I've been saying today, this kind of witch hunt that's been going on, and today they're going back to Parliament to have another debate about him, another kind of conversation mm. about whether he should be banned from the parliamentary estate. I mean, it's just too much. It's over the top, isn't it? Yeah, I, mean, I have mixed views on this. Do you? Yeah, well, let's hear them. This is where we. This is where we want to hear your I, views. Because, in, in one respects, you know, he was the captain of the ship. You yeah. know, the commander in chief, and so all the stuff that happened that were not you know, ideal were things that ultimately he's responsible for. Mm. But I do think this privileges committee have, have played a, a bit of a, a a bad bat here. You know, there's an overreach. How can yeah. you say that somebody that got a mandate from 14 million people mm. shouldn't even be afforded the opportunity to have a pass to come into the House of Commons. I know. It's nonsense. There's, a, there's a definitely a vindictiveness about it. 100%. It? It's very um, personal. But why does it, why does he make it so personal? Why Boris seems to, you know, you know, genuinely kind of um, make people either love him or hate him. There's nothing in between, really. I don't know. I mean, as a boss, he was always very positive. Yeah. Always, uh, always very encouraging. Good guy to work for? Honestly, yeah. And, and to be honest, it's not always a, a popular or fashionable thing to say, but mm. he was genuinely a really good person to me. Yeah. Well, a lot of people who know him well say that. You know, mm. the people who really hate him don't really know him, no. it would seem to me. He was, a, he was a great mayor of London. Right. He was a great mayor of London. There were people all over London, different walks of life, backgrounds, who all loved Boris Johnson. Yes. Oh, he was a terrific mayor of London. He could walk the streets of London and people, yeah. taxi drivers would shout out to him. Yeah. Even cyclists would I mean, they still nice do, but, you know, the things not they so shout out <laughs> <laughs> not necessarily things well, you want to hear on whenever, TV. Whenever I see Sadiq Khan walking around, he's always got bodyguards with him because yeah. I think, you know, I don't think he's too, uh, too keen to meet too many members of the public. Um, so tell us about your attempt to run for Mayor of London, because you were, until relatively recently, a, a candidate, weren't you? Yeah, I was one of the front runners, um, had the most endorsements, uh, most high-profile endorsement, Priti Patel, 
Nadim Zahawi, etc. Yeah. Um, the most traction in the media. Mm. Uh, and so even I was even the bookie's favourite. Right. Uh, but they clipped my wings last week. Yeah, why did they do that? Uh, I mean, when it's all said and done, the final the final analysis will show it's because I'm an outsider. Mm. You know, some, but Paul Scully didn't make it either, did he? Yeah. And, and, and a lot and, of people thought he was the most high profile of the candidates, possibly. Yeah, I mean, he was Minister for London, mm. and so I, I assumed he'd have a, a golden ticket onto the final three, but yeah. that didn't happen. Right. And so, of the final three, which one do you think's got the most chance? Are you going to say? Or do you have to endorse one of them officially? I have been speaking to, obviously, a number of the candidates that are still in the race, and, right. and they're keen for me to support their candidacy. Mm. I've said to them, I've got my book coming out this week, so I need to focus on that, and then I'm going to have a break and then we'll see where we are. Okay, uh, but I'm a huge fan of. So who is of, it that makes the, who is it that makes the decision as to who the final three are going to be? Then is it the party? Uh, is, it, is it one person? So you have a board, a bunch right. of people uh, that uh, most of the public wouldn't have uh, heard of who get behind the closed door and they decide who gets on the long list. And, and who, who are those people? List. Are they members of the Conservative Party? They're members of the party. Yes. Okay. Yes. MPs. Yes. Uh, no. 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 Big um, wings. Yeah, but there's a broader point here. They're all insiders, right. um, and so if you're an outsider, I was I, one of the things that one of the guys on the, there said to me was some of the issues. You don't sound like a politician. Right. Uh, another said to me, "Well, some of the issues you haven't been going to all these dinners." And I said, "Look, I love good food. I would right. have come to the dinners, never invited me." Yeah. And so they were basically saying, "Look, if you're not part of the establishment, we don't really want to hear from you." Uh. But, I mean, you've worked in Downey Street. Oh, yeah. An aide to Boris Johnson. Yep. How, how does that make you an outsider? Well, yeah, exactly. But there are different things, different types of outsiders. Right. So you could be a demographic outsider. Is so Boris an outsider? He's a, Yeah, in many respects, In some yes. ways, because yeah, yeah, he's a yeah. maverick. Yeah, yeah. And the, part of the, the premise of the book is telling people that there is a value you can derive from being an outsider, for being right. slightly different. Right. And so as far as your conservatism is concerned, I yep. mean, is your is your belief system not right for them in some way? What is it that they don't like? I don't think it's necessarily my belief system. It was just necessary. It was being able to say, well, he's he's definitely one of ours, right. and so you know we, we will put him in. I mean, there's there are folks in the final three who are definitely more liberal than I am, right. um, and and then maybe folks who maybe slightly similar to my conservatism. Because there's so. a lot of people who listen and watch this show. Uh, who say that the Conservative Party isn't very conservative anymore, that Rishi Sunak has kind of taken it down this road where, you know, they want to give money to people who haven't got any, they want to help people out who can't afford to pay their bills, you know, they want to uh, they want to talk tough on immigration, but they're not. Uh, the taxes have never been higher. You know, all the things that they're supposed to be conservative on, they're not. Yeah, I think they're... To be fair, the Conservative Party is a broad church, but... You not know, very much. Um, it's, 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 it's a very broad liberal church at the moment, though, isn't it? You I say? mean, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I'd agree with you on that. I mean, I know I'm a Conservative. I know yeah. the things that make me a Conservative. Well, don't you think taxes are too high? Yes. Right. And, and public spending is too high, yes. And, and public spending is too high. And, uh, and the current migration levels are not every, sustainable, yes. They're not sustainable. So you are a Conservative. Yes. And the Conservative Party isn't doing any of that. Well. So maybe you shouldn't be running. Maybe you should run as an independent. Huh? No. Why not? Because <laughs> I'm a conservative. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to try and change it for the inside then? Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to keep speaking truth to power. People said to me, Samuel, you didn't make it this time. Put your head down. Mm. Don't speak up. You'll get a safe seat or they'll let you run next time. I said, no, because nothing will change if you right. don't speak up. For the also, things you don't in. ever listen to people who say don't speak up because they just want to shut you up. Literally. They literally don't want you to do anything. Yeah. What do you want to say about Sadiq Khan? Uh, he's been a disaster. Yeah. I mean, the, whoever our candidate is... Uh, needs to do all they can to make sure they defeat 
you know the worst mayor we could mm. have ever had you know he's he's basically bankrupted city hall yeah. um he has no grip on their finances he's trying to uh, impose this year's expansion mm. on some of the most vulnerable people uh, in our city and people that serve the mm. most vulnerable people in our city yeah. and and he's always virtue signaling never focusing on his core business yeah. i think he's just been a disaster for the city he really has but yet we learned the other day 224 million i think was the amount of money they raised from ULEDs, uh, just yeah. the, the zone they've got at the moment, yep. last year alone. So how can he, how, like, what does he do with that money? Where does well, it go? He, he, he plugs his black hole. Yeah. Um, and, and the problem for us is his forecast for the next three to five years is to get an, like, an extra billion quid. Mm. And so whoever comes in to replace Sadiq is going to have to find those savings, yeah. which is definitely doable. We've looked at the numbers, um, but he's, he's just been a car crash man. Mm. So what would a Tory mayor do? Would a Tory mayor bankroll um, uh, the ULES charge and basically just do away with it altogether because a lot of people again have said to us why don't the Tories just do away with ULES altogether? I, I can't speak for whoever the candidate's oh. going to be of course but things we would do is we would have done is we would have looked at places where there was a lot of waste already in TfL so mm. for example uh, the pensions for a lot of uh, the TfL staff are basically gold plated yeah. and if they were at the same level as public sector you'd save 180 million quid uh, on day one yeah. there, there are many many places mm. where you could find efficiency savings to be able to make sure that you keep uh, uh, tick, uh, travel fares low and also not expand the units. yeah because tube fares have gone up massively haven't they yep. I mean it's very expensive I don't travel as much on the tube as I used to but um, you know people tell me that now you know they'll be spending I mean I used to spend two three hundred pounds a month just getting mm. to work and back, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and for a lot of people, that's a hard amount yeah. of money to find. Oh, there's been a hell of a lot of mismanagement. They yeah. have uh, over 1,500 uh, contract staff mm. who are basically getting paid a premium wage right. to come and work for TfL. How does that make any sense? Yes, exactly. And they've got a lot of weird practices, haven't they? Like you get paid from the moment you walk out your front door. Yeah. And that's your, your hourly rate starts then yeah. until you walk back home. Yeah. Right? Which shouldn't be the case. Your well, work day should start when you get to work. Yeah, well, Sadiq's not being challenged because he's never really had right. someone come up against him or, or not on a public platform mm. the way we were going to. And the hope is that whoever our candidate is is able to do those things. Yeah. And whoever the candidate is, I will definitely support them, give them all the information yeah. we have and because we have to beat Sadiq. That's just the, yeah. it, that London needs a new mayor. I think Britain needs to beat Sadiq because, I mean, yeah. what happens in London obviously has a reflection yeah, on, yeah. on lots of it's other financial things. financial services capital of Europe. And what I, about... Um, his uh, mayor's questions, because that seems to be a joke as well. Whenever we see clips of him being asked questions, inevitably by yeah. uh, whoever the Tory happens to be, if it's Susan Hall or somebody else, mm. he just doesn't bother answering them. He's yeah. so arrogant about it. Well, he's run away from this idea of being accountable. He's literally left London Bridge, yeah. you know, one of the epicentres of the city, and moved all the yeah. way to East London. And what's going to happen to that building? It's, it's empty, right? Well, we were trying to, again, if I was a candidate, we were looking at how we could return. Mm. Because I think, you know, every uh, major city needs to have a major hub yeah. for their mayor. And right now he's in East London. You have to really, really tr want to go there right. if you're going to right. go, go and visit. And, and also, it's, it's kind of it's slightly embarrassing for the city to have this horrible, dirty building, which was d designed specifically for London Assembly, uh, to be lying empty. Redundant. Yeah. 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 Doesn't look good. Tell us about the book. Yeah, Power of the, Power Outsider. Of the Outsider. I have yeah. one here, but I'm told you guys rip books sometimes in the studio, so I'm going <laughs> to keep it right here. Well, I sometimes <laughs> throw them, you know, but I won't throw yeah. that one. Okay, good. You so seem what, like a decent guy. Oh, thank you, Graham. So when, when I was you in... You just told me Graham, though. It's Mike. Graham's my last name. Mike Graham. Sorry. And this is why they didn't select you. You can't get people's names right. It's been a long day. It's all right. It's all right. Um, Don't worry. Okay. Thank you. It's fine. Okay. 
Mike, <laughs> don't worry. So, when, <laughs> so tell me about the book. So when when I was in uh, uh, Downing Street, um, uh, I was one of the few that wasn't part of the vote leave set. I mean, I voted to leave, but yeah. I wasn't part of Dom and Co. Right. I, I didn't work at City Hall. What was he like? Actually, I forgot to ask you about uh, Great mind, things. great mind, misunderstood. Weird. Um, yeah, but you know, weird is good. Un- uncommon people do uncommon things. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, so I wasn't part of the City Hall gang, didn't work for Boris and City Hall. Um, and for many other reasons, didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge. Mm. I was an outsider. Right. Didn't wasn't something I reflected on much in Downing Street. But when I left, I wanted to really help people who might have felt like outsiders in whatever environment right. they're in to really understand how you how you navigate spaces mm. as, a, as an outsider. Okay. Hence the t- t- title. And what have you been doing since then? So I took time out to re- uh, write this book. Yeah. Um, and also uh, I'm a district councillor, cabinet member, um, so still being involved in local politics. Okay. And I've been planning you know, the next phase of, of my engagement with politics, which was potentially going to be running for the London mayoralty, but actually that's not where it starts right. uh, or, or where it ends. There's a lot I'm going to do around house building, making sure that next, the next uh, well, government the house, the does a lot more Well, the housing story today that. is remarkable, I think. Yeah, we've been, we've been let down by politicians yeah. when it comes to housing. Right. Um, There's the, the, been acts of evil acts. You know, I, I say, look, Michael Gove is one of the most impressive politicians of his generation, but in uh, scrapping mandatory housing targets, mm. he has done one of the most evil things any politician will ever do. And what drives Michael Gove? Because some of his ideas seem to come from kind of left field, and it's never that clear why he wants to do the things that he's doing. Well, there are some politicians who are, who are more interested in being relevant than doing the right thing. Yeah. And he's not alone in that. Right. I mean, there are many politicians across the house. You know, every political party will have folks who are just simply ambitious. Mm. Um, but I think that actually what we need is statesmen, people who are passionate about the next generation. We do need that. And they need to guide the, the decisions that are yeah. being made. And when you were in Downing Street, could you see the wheels coming off? Or was it still OK then? Um, the other things I saw, I wasn't necessarily entirely. I mean, did you see things that with. were going to cause that were going to be a problem? In yeah, of course, of course. Right, and why did you leave? Well, partly because of that. Really? Yeah, I mean, look, you have to be one step ahead. That I could see where things could potentially uh, end, mm. uh, um, and I didn't want to be a part of that. Okay. I needed to live to fight another day, you Mike. Didn't, you, thank you. <laughs> um, you didn't take any robes from checkers or anything. No. Good. I would have. <laughs> <laughs> Most people would have. Listen, really good to meet you. You're welcome back any time. Oh, thank you. So do come back and share some of your other thoughts because I'm sure there's more things we could get from you. Great. Samuel Kasumi, the book is called The Power of the Outsider. Where is? Where can you get it? Amazon, Waterstones. Hold it up. Show Amazon, people. Waterstones. There you go. Uh, every good bookstore. Every good bookstore. Great stuff. Um, good to see you. Cheers. Thank you. See you again soon. Samuel Kasumi, coming up, uh, we're going to take a trip to Venice because apparently there's a lot of people stuck there. Could be worse places to be stuck, I suppose. This is Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelength, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It's been fascinating so far. We've got some great calls coming in uh, that we want to talk to all of you about as well. We'll try and get to you as soon as we can. We've got a packed hour coming up. Coming up, Madeline Grant from The Telegraph is going to join us. She's got lots to say about a great many subjects, including the COVID inquiry, including that graveyard of PPE that was found uh, over the weekend near the New Forest. Also, a bit of the row about the honours list. I've got a great tweet here which sort of sums up uh, where we seem to have got to. Uh, this morning. Peter from Somerset says, I hope cat-identifying pupils are provided with a suitable litter box for a toilet or are they put in a suitable outdoor area? Do male cats share the same litter box? What about trans cats? This is how ridiculous identity politics has become. It has become mad, hasn't it? Where you actually wouldn't be surprised at all, surprised even uh, at all, to find that that would be the next question for somebody identifying as a cat uh, as to where they were allowed to go. Do they have cat-only spaces? That kind of thing, you know. 
we have reached a very odd place. David Cameron's still giving evidence, by the way, to the COVID inquiry. We might go back to that uh, in a little while. And also, we will uh, have a look at that rather ludicrously ridiculous story uh, of Wagatha Christie, uh, which seems to have raised its ugly head again. They're on the front page of The Sun uh, once more this morning. Uh, Wagatha wore over 1.8 million. Apparently, they're arguing about uh, court costs now. I mean, dearie me, can you imagine? I can't think why they would bother. They've obviously just not got enough to do. Let's say a very good afternoon and a welcome to Madeline Grant. Madeline, very nice to see you. Hi, Mike. Great to be with you. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. So there's a lot to talk about. Um, let's kick off with this mountain of thousands of unused packs of aprons and masks that were sort of fly tipped. I don't know who by. Nobody knows who by. Somewhere near the New Forest. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Mm. I mean, it just really underlines the extent to which so much activity during the pandemic has been a despicable waste of money but you know it, it, it strikes me that you know how how difficult would it be to actually trace back um this equipment to the to the people who produced it i mean surely there would be you'd expect there to be some kind of marking or identification mm. or a barcode or something that would trace it back you would think and so it takes me back as well to those piles and piles of tests Do you remember the randox test that everybody was doing and you had to put them somewhere to be collected and after a while many of them were just uncollected and there's some piles and piles of them in streets kind of overfilling people you know and even now you still see masks sort of discarded thrown away um you don't see loads of them but i mean this is clearly um a crime apparently isn't it yeah i mean absolutely people get fixed penalty notices for um, fly tipping all the time, um, including um, I actually got one myself once because I took my stuff to a recycling bin that was already full. Right. And so I thought if I leave it by the bin, that's OK. Yeah. And I got I got fined 120 quid, even though I had been trying to get rid of my fly tipping. Wow. So not and fly and tipping. How, did, how, did, how did they find you? Was it a car registration plate or something? No, it was it was something that had my name on it because I thought this is not fly tipping because the bin is full. Hmm. But in any case, I think people have to deal with these kind of things all the time. So this giant mound, you would expect that would, uh, you know, this is not normal fly tipping, is it? Well, it really isn't. But this is typical of this country, isn't it? You'll get you'll get done for leaving a plastic bag with a couple of things in it uh, next to a recycling bin. But you won't get done for leaving literally sort of, you know, half a ton of rubbish in the forest. <laughs> That's fine. Yes. I mean, yes, exactly. Would, would you not also think that, given that we're under surveillance most of the time, that they'd have a camera somewhere that would have spotted whoever it was that left this stuff? Yeah, you would think so, wouldn't you? I mean, I've I've no idea, but it's just ex- it's extraordinary. It's a great metaphor for you know how wasteful and pointless much of what happened during that time was. I mean, right. I remember before the pandemic, um, bl- banning plastics was a massive topic. You know, there was. They've even now they've done away with plastic straws. So that if you go to a, a cocktail bar, you end up with a cardboard tasting drink. I can't a, stand those things. I, li- I, I can, no, I literally can't get on with those. They also disintegrate after about yeah, two they, sips. Yeah, they do. And, um, you know, amid all of that, um, mounds and mounds and mounds of plastic. Um, and no one seemed to give any attention or concern about this during the pandemic. I mean, sometimes I will wear a coat I haven't worn in a while and I'll find an old mask and yeah. it's almost a bit of an odd bit of paraphernalia. It is, like- you're right. I, I, I had one of those um, a, a few weeks back when I put an old anorak or something on because it was raining and there was one inside there and, and I was never one to wear the mask anyway. I just used to sort of carry one in case there was some necessity for it. But but it's a very it was a very odd time but, but sadly it would be nice to say that they're not still wasting millions and millions and millions of pounds on it but they still are aren't they because they're now doing the inquiry we're watching david cameron this morning giving evidence and i don't think he's anything he said really so far has been of any note whatsoever well yes i mean 
I've I've got serious concerns about the the inquiry from the very start. I was really alarmed actually that um, uh, a week ago when the hearings began, it was reported that they were requiring all participants of the hearings to do a lateral flow test. Mm. But in fact, the government has decided more than a year ago that it would no longer fund fund free tests and public bodies and public events no longer haven't required that for a very long time. So the fact that the inquiry had deliberately taken a position that was far more extreme than almost any other mm. public body believes COVID to be uh, struck me as a kind of quite an ominous sign. And, you know, the fact that so many of the core participants seem to be drawn from uh, medical, governmental bodies, trade unions, etc. And they don't really seem to be... Um, really giving much of a platform to anyone who was quite sceptical of lockdown in general, who so far, I mean, obviously, we'll, we'll have to wait and mm. see. Um, but it, once again, it just seems to be what public inquiries often are, which is a massive feeding frenzy for lawyers in mm. which generates a lot of heat and not much light. I must admit, my heart slightly sank when the opening statement from the barrister, whose name I forget, uh, mentioned austerity and Brexit in the same sentence. And Apparently, caught that was part of the cause of how our response to COVID wasn't very good. And I just thought, really, That's, you've gone a bit early on that one. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And the irony is actually that um, many civil servants said the exact opposite. That although they had to go out of their way to do extra preparation in case of no deal, that actually that gave them lots more contingency planning just from having done those preparations mm. than, than if they hadn't. So it's I'm not even sure if that's factually true it just seems to be a case of motivated reasoning for people that had an axe to grind at the best of times absolutely and they're not really asking the right sorts of questions are they all the questions as you say seem to be more tapered towards organized um you know kind of adherence to the rules and whether or not the rules should have been imposed sooner or you know whether things should have been held down for longer and all of that it doesn't the, 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 i haven't seen anybody asking questions like are you sure you really needed to have a rule of six Yes, exactly. And that's that's the thing that the that it's become an article of faith and a kind of article of great certainty that um, the problem with lockdown uh, wasn't that it happened. I mean, for example, the fallout from Partygate mm. is often that the politicians were hypocrites, which they were. Um, but the problem wasn't that they um, the rules were wrong. It was that they failed to adhere to their own rules, mm. not that the rules were, were at fault. And I think that's become very much the kind of accepted assumption. But it does need to be challenged. You know, maybe they will bring new new information to light and you want to go into these things with an open mind. But the fact that something that really ought to be a controversial idea is being treated as an mm. article of faith worries me greatly. Absolutely right. Because if there is to be another lockdown or there is to be another pandemic, these are the kinds of things they need to discuss so that we know whether it was a good idea. I mean, we know that we don't think it was a good idea. Certainly I don't. Um, but what I would like to know is their justification for it and, and whether they would do it again, uh, given the chance. My suspicion is they would like to. It would be really good, wouldn't it, to have some kind of public agreement or acknowledgement that even if, um, you know, a similar COVID-like virus were to reappear, mm. uh, that they would not resort to the same indiscriminate lockdowns, um, that they would try to strain every, every sinew to prevent schools from ever being closed again. Um, but I, I don't think we've had anything like that kind of admission. No. I mean, it would be very, very, it would bring me a lot of um, 
uh, a lot of a lot of calm if they would. Absolutely, because we sort of stand rather alone on these things, don't we? I mean, when that report came out um, from uh, the IEA and Johns Hopkins University, which the Tele Telegraph published, and we ran uh, quite big with hardly anybody else touched it. Yeah, it's true, and um, public polling on this suggests that people are absolutely emphatically uh, in favour, in, in general, of, of the lockdown and think it was a good idea. Mm. Um, I know uh, a friend of mine who, who works in polling was um, commissioned recently to do some, and I don't think the polling was ever published because um, it was so um, it was so overtly pro lockdown. Mm. Um, that it ended up not, not 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 being published because I think the people who commissioned it hope, were hoping for something more <laughs> in their favour. But right. it, you know, the people think that it didn't go on long enough in some cases, and that if anything, children could have had more time off school. Um, so we are very much in a minority here, um, and you know, I'm not actually all that surprised by it because we had you know several years of of a greater sort of narrative that was largely based on on fear mm. and um it was really you know the media has a massive amount to blame for that as well as the politicians absolutely because we have become this kind of infantilized society now i mean i was arguing this with, with julie hartley bureau this morning that you know mortgage rates are going up so people are going well what's, what's the government doing about it you know what, what are you going to do well i can't afford my mortgage it's gone up you go well maybe you have to sell the house i mean that's the way it works you know when i was um much younger than i am now i bought for my first house it didn't uh, make loads of money it made a little bit of money second house made a bit more money uh, eventually I, I had one house that i lost completely and it just went away had to give the keys back to the bank you know these are the things that happen in the in the, in the housing market but now whenever anything goes wrong people want a handout from the government yeah it's really interesting isn't it that an idea that on the surface ought to be actually quite controversial the idea that you get people who taxpayers who have no property of their own to speak of to uh, stump up money to support people that do have an mm. asset that's quite extraordinary i'm not sure that this would even be discussed um a few years ago because it would quite quite obviously mm. i think many people would have said well that's clearly not going to happen but as you say there has been a sea change i think a rubicon has been crossed and people now expect um more bailouts and, and, and support from the state than, than ever before. Yeah. And, and you know, the money has to come from, from somewhere. Um, should we finish off with, uh, with Boris Johnson? The, the supposed uh, vote today on whether he gets to be banned from the parliamentary estate seems to me to be a step too far, waste of time and money. Um, but the honours row is still going on as well. Do you think people just have picked on Boris Johnson because of Boris Johnson? Yeah, I think Boris Johnson's... Um, got his fair share of enemies, but chief amongst them is Boris Johnson. Um, <laughs> I do think that the, the all of this has gone too far and that it's been it's very clearly politically motivated, that 90 days suspension seems like an absurdly mm. high pun punishment and removing his parliamentary pass just looks vindictive. You know, they could have given him a serious punishment and a big slap on the wrist without having to go this far. And it, it just adds grist to the the mill of, of Boris and his, his supporters who mm. will, will, can now say that they that they have a genuine grievance, whereas before perhaps they, they didn't have so much ground. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just, I feel that we might be talking about this forever. And I keep thinking, you know, every time there's a new revelation about Partygate, I, I keep thinking, well, surely we've moved on from this now. Surely we've kind of, it's all baked in that mm. lots of people broke the rules. But no, the, the, the media appetite for it seems to be completely interesting. <laughs> uh, uh, unending, really. Mm. It really does. And I don't know where it does end because he's no longer going to be an MP. He's no longer the Prime Minister. He's not in the Cabinet. Um, most of the people in the Conservative Party, it would seem, certainly at the part of Westminster level, don't want him there particularly. So the, the, the game is up for him, isn't it? 
Yeah, I think so. Um, although, you know, you can never write Boris Johnson off forever. And now that he has his column in the, the mail, you know, that's a massive... What did you make of that? Platform. Well, um... I thought I mean, it I was a spoof. I thought I thought I read the first bit of it when it came out on Friday night. I thought presumably there's a real column. This, this isn't it. But actually, it was quite entertaining. I just thought it was interesting that he didn't go for something that was at all relating to his present woes. Um, you know, you'd have assumed that they would go for something really punchy and political mm. so that they would get a big scoop out of it. Um, but, you know, that, that I'm sure that that will come. Um, Boris Johnson now has a big platform to to rally the troops. And I think it, it could be a real headache for Rishi Sunak and and, and, and his party, because although in the, I think the public um, public appreciation of, of Boris Johnson has, has declined massively, there's still very large numbers of people within the Conservative Party mm. who remain fans of his. And especially after, you know, what the, the, um, the Privileges Committee has done and just other things like, you know, the shameful way in which Sue Gray has flitted from the civil service into the Labour Party. Yes. Oh, I think he'll definitely be back. I just think he needs a bit of a period of sort of rest and recuperation, a bit of quiet time, maybe in um, Mustique or something with Carrie and the new, ch yes. and the new child. And then, and then he can, uh, after the next election, if Chris Sunak loses, maybe then he comes back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's what he wants more than anything else. Mm. Uh, obviously, when he made his, his, his after the Liz Truss's um, very short stint in number 10, after that came to an end, I thought it was interesting how having kind of gone off and made some money doing speaking engagements, he immediately rallied, kind of get back to London mm. and rally a team behind him. He was willing to drop everything um, when the possibility of, of being in power once again uh, presented itself. And I, I think that's Boris Johnson's attitude towards um, number 10 in general. It's his number one goal in life is to, yeah. to get back into number 10. He's like the journalist that always has a passport in his pocket in the hopes that he's going to get sent somewhere, right? Yeah, <laughs> back, in the, back in the good old days. Back in the good old days, absolutely right. Madeline, good to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Madeline Grant, columnist at the Telegraph there, uh, talking a lot of sense. And uh, it's what we do here, of course, at Talk TV. Uh, we do talk an awful lot of sense. Coming up, uh, we'll take some calls. Uh, we might hear some more from David Cameron. And we are going to talk to uh, the PR guru, Mark Bukowski, of course. Uh, the Wagatha Christie case is back, I'm afraid. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.